Good morning, church. Let's go to John chapter 9. Um, I'm going to read through verse 25, a larger section than we, we might usually cover on a, on a Sunday. Um, but this is the story, and we need to get a, a big chunk of it here to, to see what's going on. So in John chapter 9, it says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am, in the, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated, Sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he, he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him, who formerly was blind, to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him, because he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight, until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. And his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Uh, let's pray for our time. Jesus, we ask that that your spirit who makes the blind to see and the lame to walk um, would give us spiritual sight into things that, that we would otherwise be blinded to. We pray that you would open up your word to us, uh, that your church would be able to see the kindness and the, and the goodness that, um, that you have shown your church, that we would be able to rejoice in in our association with the blind man, and, and that we would um, see the power of testimony, even, and, and be just as bold as this man who was once blind to say, Christ has let me see. So bless this sermon, please bless your church, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're really going to mostly focus um, on the first seven verses, and then verse 25. 
and uh, we're going to stop there in the middle of the conversation, even though verse 26 picks it up, you know, right, right there again. And next week we'll, we'll go into uh, more of the details of this story. In chapter 8, you'll remember Jesus miraculously escaped from a crowd of Pharisees that had wanted to stone him to death. Jesus said something that made them very mad. Um, they, they weren't just threatening to kill him. They were just talking about killing him in like, you know, dark secret rooms in the back. In chapter 8, verse 59, it says they actually picked up rocks to, to, do, the, to do it with, to, to kill him. But then it says Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. And, and last week we talked a little bit in closing about how Jesus was hidden from these people because they weren't seeking him in faith. And we talked about how coming to Christ with the wrong attitude can, can blind a person. However, we've also seen that blindness can showcase Christ's mercy and his glory. God is greater than our blindness and even uses the settings of physical and spiritual blindness in order to illuminate the eyes of our hearts. Saul of Tarsus comes at Jesus, fighting, killing, foaming at the mouth, and Jesus strikes him blind, but he allows that blindness to be a cause for Saul's salvation. The Pharisees come at Jesus in, uh, in, you know, with, with murder in their hearts, and they too are, are blinded. They're blinded and prevented from following the dictates of their heart and killing God. They're blinded, but for most of them, this does not result in their salvation. Now, we all know that the same sun, the same heat of the sun, it melts butter and it hardens clay. And, the, you know, both believers and unbelievers are, are broken on the same rock who is Christ. We are either broken on him or broken underneath, crushed into powder. And this is a similar principle. Hosea 6.1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. In the book of Job, a book that would have a lot to say about John chapter 9, I think, um, it says, For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Now, both the Pharisees of John 8 and the Pharisee in Acts 8, that's Paul, they're blinded, but one is blinded so that he can see again, so that he can see in another way again. And just to complicate things more, there's, there, there is a blindness that is sinless and, and, and a claim to sight, a seeing, that reveals sin. Now, I'm foreshadowing here. We're going to get into this next Sunday. Um, but at the end of chapter 9, Jesus says to the Pharisees, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. So there's a lot of layers here when we're talking about blindness, when we're talking about seeing. Now in John chapter 9, um, it begins with some, some simplicity because we encounter another blind person. But this is someone who is literally and physically blind. And then he is given sight, both physically and spiritually. And in stark contrast with this man, we have the Pharisees who have their physical sight, but have been blinded to spiritual truths. In chapter 8, Jesus was hidden from them physically. They actually didn't see them. He walked right between them, you know, bumped shoulders with them as he passed through them, and they weren't unable to see him. It was a miraculous uh, salvation for Jesus. Um, but, but now they're, they're still blinded spiritually where they're unable to see Christ for who he is. 
In chapter 7, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And here in chapter 9, we see him say it again, I am the light of the world. And we see that light illuminate the dark world of this poor beggar. Now, as we read scripture, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've noticed there's not a whole lot of good guys. Um, there's some role models, of course, um, but mostly there's, there's bad guys and Jesus. And while not all scripture is meant for you to find yourself in, certainly, you know, it's, it's written for you, the church, but it's not all written about you. Uh, a good way to study the scripture is to associate yourself with the lowly and the sinner. And in this way, we find two kinds of mirrors for us in John chapter 9. Um, and, uh, you know, James, we, we studied James last year, and in the book of James it says that uh, the word of God is like a mirror that we look into, but usually we look into it and then we get up and forget what we just saw. And we don't want to be like that, but there are two reflections in John chapter 9 that very clearly, um, that are there very clearly for us to consider. And the first one is, is the blind man himself, of course. This is a man who has lived a life of suffering, um, and God has mercy on him. And the, the church sings, I once was blind, but now I see. And we believe that. So we believe that, you know, be, because Christ has come and had mercy on us, we are this blind man. We sing, I once was lost and now I'm found. I was, was blind, but now I see. Because we associate ourselves with the blind beggar. But we are also a people who tend towards the way of the disciples. Uh, and we are disciples, right? We consider ourselves disciples. We are followers of Christ. And unfortunately, that's not always flattering when we see ourselves as a group. Uh, and we see that we are, we're, we would be numbered among the 12, perhaps, um, who say with conviction, in verse 2, that bad things happen only because bad people do bad things. And they inflict their theology on the poor and suffering of the world. And there's a mirror here as well, because when you see yourself, and, and excuse me, when you see yourself in it, um, you're probably going to want to go wash your face. Now, we've, we're, we've read the chapter. Uh, it's a chapter about spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. Uh, I'm going to give you an overview of the whole chapter again, and then we'll go back to this problem that the disciples are having, and then go from there and focus really in on verse 1 through 7, uh, with a little bit of verse 25 at the end there. Now in verse 2, Jesus encounters a blind person and the disciples view this man as a theological puzzle rather than a person to be ministered to. And they say, who sinned, this man or his parents? They have the understanding that bad things happen to bad people, plain and simple. This is very friends of Job and Jesus corrects it. And then Jesus heals the man in a very peculiar way, and we'll talk about that. Then the Pharisees find the healed man, interrogate him to be sure that he really was blind earlier that day. It turns out he was. And they try to intimidate him and his parents, and then they excommunicate him, which we'll get into next week. Verse 34 says they cast him out. It's bad. It's, it's a problem. This man pays dearly for the sight that was just given to him. But while he was cast out of the synagogue in the Jewish life as he knew it, he was welcomed into the family of God and the life of Christ, eternal life. And we see that he gets a, a personal encounter with Christ post-healing uh, that is really a, a special thing. Uh, the chapter ends with an important conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees again, where he makes it very clear 
that they are the blind ones. And Jesus talks about true vision and true blindness. So, verse 1 again. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, an interesting thing about passing by, that's how chapter 8 uh, wrapped up, right? It says, and so Jesus passed by. So he passes by the Pharisees who had physical sight, but Jesus gave them spiritual blindness. And he is still passing by, and he would pass by this physically blind person, but says, no, no, we, we've got something to do here. Actually, the disciples notice him first, and they say, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? What's the assumption here? And the assumption is that this personal that personal hardship inevitably comes from personal or familial sin. Now, if, if they wanted to zoom out a whole lot, they wouldn't be too far from the truth. Yes, suffering is a result of sin in an ultimate sense. Adam and Eve fell from grace and brought all their descendants and the whole created order down with them. And if you want to answer every single question through this lens, you can, but you won't get a lot done. Uh, the disciples had a similar view, but it was more specific and, and less accurate. They believed that this man could have sinned even before birth. Obviously, they said, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? So they believed that, that the, the pre-born soul could have sinned so bad that he messed up the rest of his life. So I'll just let you consider that on your own time over lunch this afternoon. Um, the disciples are thinking some weird things. And that they believed that this man was punished or else his parents sinned and they were punished with a blind son. What an inconvenience. A blind son who suffered the consequences of another's sins. Now, again, there's there's grains of truth here, which make it all the more dangerous. You know, I mean, children suffering for their parents' sins, that's a real thing. Fetal alcohol syndrome is real. Birth defects that can result from very real sins of parents, that, that's a real thing. However, it's not always so simple. And the problem with the disciples' perspective is this. They can't imagine a more subtle situation where something like this would happen and the victim not be at fault. They can't picture a scenario where pain is not punishment. And so because of this narrow perspective and inability to look at things another way, they ask a question that has only two possible answers. Either this man sinned, and we should probably talk about what a dirty rotten sinner he is, maybe judge him harshly, or his parents sinned, in which case we can do the same thing for them. Those are the only options. Now, it, it's a formula that they have that ties up all bad things into a nice little Pandora's box with a bow on it. You know, they, th this is dead religion's favorite thing. It's simple. It's rigid. You can explain everything away with this kind of formula and judge everyone you don't like. And you don't actually need, you know, evidence or verification. Um, and you certainly don't need to have any mercy towards anyone. You, you can see something go wrong in a person's life and say, well, the reason they're struggling is obviously because they did that when they should have done this. 
Or you can remove one step further and throw a bone to Freud, I guess, and say, well, the reason they are this way is because their mom is like that. These are empty musings of self-satisfied religious relics. But in this case, notice, it's the disciples, those are our people, it's the disciples that are saying these kinds of things. And this is the world that they were raised in. This was the religious climate. The disciples were probably raised with their teachers and their parents and their, their rabbis pointing out the lame and the blind and taking that as an opportunity to warn them, don't sin, otherwise you'll end up like that. Or perhaps listening uh, to the gossips in the synagogue talking about a sick child saying, well, you know what their parents are like, so obviously... You know, this kind of thing would have been common for them, and, and this kind of thing, the attributing of suffering to sin, isn't limited to the ancient world by any means. People still think like this, people still talk like this, and this kind of thing is still alive and well in the church. There is a mirror here for us. And I believe it's one of the reasons, I believe our tendency towards this line of thought is one of the reasons God has graciously given us the book of Job. Now, the book of Job is, of course, a book about suffering, but it's more than that. It's a book about bad advice. Uh, the, the book of Job is a, is a book about the bad advice that well-intentioned, ill-informed people give to the person who is suffering, and it's about the wrong way to understand and encounter suffering. You know, after Job loses his children, his servants, his wealth, his health, Job's friends comfort him by saying, surely... All of this happened because you did something wrong. And they actually have a lot of good things to say. The verse that I quoted from Job earlier, which is true, is from one of Job's friends who say a lot of things that aren't true also. It's a it can be a confusing study to make. But the point they always return to ultimately is a bad one. Their arguments are always based on the faulty premise that suffering must be punishment, plain and simple. And if you read through the book of Job, you see that God is not pleased with this line of thinking. He does not approve of their logic. In the end, Job has to make sacrifices to the Lord for his friends, because the Lord says to the friends, My wrath is aroused against you, for you have not spoken of me what is right, like my servant Job has. The disciples are operating under the same illusion as the friends of Job, that a suffering person must be suffering because God is punishing their sins. It's cause and effect without compromise. A formula. And it's got enough truth in it to be tempting. After all, we are all sinners. That's true. Suffering, pain, anguish. This is the result of sin. That's true. Your sins do result in suffering. That's true. So you're not wrong in saying that the suffering person is a sinner. But that's just low-hanging fruit. And it doesn't really solve anything. Jesus addresses that formula and he says, I have a better one. I have a better equ uh, equation. I have a better formula. Verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the work of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So the second time he says this, I am the light of the world. And he says, this man is not blind because of any sin that he committed. He's not blind because of any sin that his parents committed. Now, of course, 
that that's what he means when he says neither this man nor his parents sinned. He's not saying they are sinless. We've got Romans 3, all have sinned, right? But he says they didn't sin in a way that resulted in this man's blindness. The question was about cause and effect, and the disciples asked a closed question with only two options. And Jesus throws that question out, and he rephrases the conversation, he reframes the question, and Jesus says that some, he says something that, that changes the believer's view of suffering in the world. He says, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. In other words, the reason this man is born blind was so that he can show how God works. Now, there are a number of ways that Jesus could, be, could have answered their question and addressed the issue and still be correct. He could have talked about how Adam's sin resulted in a fallen world. That's probably what most of us would do in this situation, right? If one of your child, uh, children, one of your children comes to you and says, well, why is, why is suffering in the world? Why do bad things happen? Why is that person blind? You would usually say, well, Adam and Eve in the garden, there was a fruit and then the snake. And, and you would say that everything has fallen and nothing's perfect, which is true and a little bit of a cop-out. Um, you know, it's sort of kind of the, the same answer that we give when, you know, you, you kill a mosquito and you're like, why did God make mosquitoes? And then the only answer we have is, well, Adam sinned in the garden. And that's, not a, a very thorough answer, is it, to the question. But Jesus, he could have done that. He could have said, oh, you see, blindness is in the world because, uh, and he could have gone into Pauline theology, Romans chapter 5, you know, sin came through one man, death spread to all men because all sinned. Um, he doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. And, and sometimes, I'm noticing this in John, sometimes it, it seems like Jesus actually avoids the theological and the theoretical conversations. He'll leave those to the apostles. He'll leave that to Paul. Paul's great at that. But he goes straight for the, the praxis, the practice of truth. Instead of talking about sin and its consequences, or even the sovereignty of God over and in the midst of the fallen world, the main thrust of Jesus's message in this instance is this. I have work to do here, and I'm going to do it. Are you going to come? So instead of saying, let me analyze the problem, he says, watch me solve the problem. Now, the disciples weren't thinking along those lines, were they? They went straight to the problem, but it was entirely theoretical. And the, the problem was, well, the, the man sinned, or, and he's in darkness. Jesus goes straight to the solution. I am the light of the world, and that's where our focus needs to be. This is a perspective change that many of us need. Now, we know that Jesus isn't saying that sin doesn't matter. He's not one to skirt around that issue and just say that everyone is good-hearted and misunderstood. That's obviously not his way of doing things. We've read enough of the Gospels to know that. But he knows the time and place for talking and acting. And when he encounters suffering, he doesn't explain it. He tends to it. People, for Jesus, are not merely topics for discussion. Suffering is not theoretical. Jesus suffers himself. He knows about that. And so Jesus is near to the brokenhearted. He is close to the contrite spirit. 
Jesus goes to the person and he sees suffering not as a problem to be explained, but rather as an opportunity to show his glory, an opportunity to work, a shift towards this Christ-like perspective in the believer would be a shift from the why God questions to where God questions. Instead of why God is there suffering and injustice and pain and sorrow, it doesn't make sense, I don't like it, why haven't you done something about it? No, you say, where God would you send me? Where is there suffering that I can minister to? Where are the people who need to see the light of the world that I am now a vessel of and responsible for distributing? Where will you send me? It, you had to notice, I'm sure, that the disciples, in asking their question about this man, they show absolutely no interest in actually helping him. They did not ask, how much can we afford to give him, Jesus? He's begging, so we've got some money, we can give this guy maybe. Or, or they could have said, Jesus, you know, we've seen you heal other people. Um, how about you just go ahead and perform a miracle right now and, and heal this man? No, they see him as a topic for discussion and not a man to love. And Charles Spurgeon, he said this, he says, it is, It's ours not to speculate, but to perform acts of mercy and love according to the tenor of the gospel. Let us then be less inquisitive and more practical, less for cracking doctrinal nuts and more for bringing forth the bread of life to the starving multitudes. We ask now, where will you send me? Jesus knew that this blind man was where he was sent. He says, this is my father's work. And he said before in John, I only do the work that my father sent me to do. He saw the problem, blindness, and a different kind of blindness maybe in the disciples right now. And he saw this problem as an opportunity to do his father's work. If we are going to be like Jesus and be about our father's business, then we will witness the hurting world around us through the same lens as an opportunity for the gospel and the glory of Christ. The disciples ask questions and speculate and wonder and scratch their heads and would have kept walking. Jesus heals. Verse 6, when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Um, this is fun. <laughs> you, <laughs> I was thinking when I read this, you know how churches, some churches have like foot washing as part of it, like a real ceremony, a special worship service. People wash their feet and wash each other's feet. Um, it's a very humbling experience to be on either side of it, actually. Uh, but I, I think if we started incorporating a spit-in-your-eye ceremony in church, it would be even more humbling uh, in a different way, maybe. Now, this is strange. Um, uh, to, and I, I don't really think I need to make it any less strange than it is, but you do have to know that using your saliva, if you are a doctor using your spit to mix a medicine would not be such a crazy idea. Um, in the Middle East and even in the, the Far East and ancient Eastern medicines, this is, believe it or not, still done. Saliva is said to have healing properties. And so uh, mi mixing medicine with a spit wouldn't have been so crazy. 
Um, it may have been that the people watching thought that the dirt part was crazier than the spit part, actually, because it's just dirt on the ground. Um, but this, this is strange, and it's one of the things that you see, especially if you've been going through the Gospels, and then you get to the fourth one, you get to John, you read this story, and by then you will have noticed that Jesus heals people in a whole lot of different ways, with words, sometimes without words, sometimes with a touch, without a touch, with mud made out of spit. Uh, he, he does things differently just about every time. And once again, this works really well with this story about formulas, Jesus is working outside of a formula. Um, healings are another thing we want to package up and analyze. We want to say, okay, this is how miracles happen. God heals people this way. Uh, the person who is sick uh, has faith, and then God heals them. Done. Mm, no, not always. Uh, the paralytic brought through the roof was healed, and it says that when Jesus saw their faith, so it's more than just the man, it was, it was the people that, that brought him, probably. Their faith was involved in the healing. Other times, there's dead people who get raised from the dead. No one has faith in that situation except Jesus. Dead people don't have faith, but Jesus heals them too. Sometimes it's one way, sometimes it's another. In 1 Corinthians, when Paul is listing spiritual gifts, when it gets to healing, it's actually plural. It's healings. Recognizing a diversity even in that one gift. Jesus makes mud. He puts it on the man's eyes. Um, you know, Jesus had made other things out of dirt, too. A long, long time back, he formed man out of the dust of the ground. And just as he created life, so now, with the dust of the ground, he is restoring life. Now, I'm, I'm picturing mud, and I'm picturing what that would look like to put that on someone's eyes and... You know, you, I guess you could say he smeared mud on his eyes. Could be accurate. If you wanted to clean that up a little bit, you could say he applied medicinally uh, the mud. But John says that he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Now, this word does carry the idea of medicine, but also spiritual authority. The word for Messiah literally means anointed one. Priests and kings were anointed. Now, how beautiful that this word anointed can apply to the, to the sick as well as the Savior. You, know, you anoint the weak, the sick, the invalid, and you anoint kings and priests. Isn't that just what God has done, done for us, done to us? He has made us a kingdom of priests. He hasn't just saved us from our blindness. He has anointed us with the oil of gladness. And he has saved us to holiness. John, in using the word anoint, is elevating the blind man from mere subject to one who is appointed, one who is sent, which is also evident in Jesus' instruction. Verse 7, And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The name of the pool that Jesus commands the man to go to is called sent. Who would name a pool sent? Answer? Hezekiah it turns out. Probably. The word actually means the sending out or even gushing forth of water. Water is implied. And, and this is one side uh, of Hezekiah's tunnel. Uh, 2 Kings 20 verse 20 says that Hezekiah built a pool and a conduit to bring water into the city. The, there was a spring outside the city walls of Jerusalem and they dug this really cool tunnel, uh, engineering marvel, and you can go st uh, see it today in Jerusalem. 
and uh, water from this tunnel it connected the spring outside the, the city walls into Jerusalem and it poured into it gushed forth it was sent from outside into the pool of Siloam the water was sent from outside the city walls into the city which made Jerusalem practically impervious to siege because if you had water then they could grow crops within the city and they could wait out an enemy's attack it's pretty cool Jesus sends the man to a place where running water Okay, the water is gushing forth, uh, where running water, called living water sometimes, would flow from outside the city into the pool. I'm sure there's some gospel there for anyone who wants to find it. The pool is called Scent, because water is sent from the spring into the pool, and now Jesus chooses this pool called Scent, not because of its healing properties, but probably for the, the word itself. This is a Christian truth that you need to understand and embrace. To be healed is to be sent. That's just the way it works. Jesus makes whole, and then he, he sends. The demon-possessed man who was healed and then wanted to follow Jesus as one of the disciples, what did Jesus tell him to do? Mark 5.19, go home to your friends. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. The ten lepers healed. Jesus says, go show yourself to the priests. That was a different kind of evangelism. John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and you also love one another. He has healed us with his love and commands us to go and do the same. The Great Commission. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. The disciples had been healed they were once lost, and now they're found. They were blind, but now they see. So what's next? They're sent. That's how the Gospels end. And then Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the next chapter. He says, And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. That, that's ascending. That's being sent. You have been healed, and you have been sent. You are the blind man. Christ has made you see, and now you are sent. Now, I'm going to read, uh, again, several verses here, and you'll see how this man becomes uh, a very untrained uh, missionary. He's a little rough around the edges in his theology. He's got a lot of missing holes, but you'll still see that he bears witness of Christ's healing power. And you'll see, again, an example that we are given to follow. Uh, halfway through verse 7, it says, So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had been, had seen that he was blind, said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How are your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. And then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him, him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. Now was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened the man's eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to him, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can this man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. 
But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he that he had been blind and received his sight, until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked him, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man, they're talking about Jesus there, is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Now, there's a lot here, and we won't really get into the details of the whole thing, partly because we've seen this before, haven't we? We've seen that um, the Pharisees have had the same reaction again, and, and uh, it's, we'll see it again later in John. But here are the highlights of what we just read. The friends and neighbors of the blind man saw a difference. They witnessed the change. And this is what happens when Jesus makes people new. Next, there's questions. The inspection, the poking and prodding, not all done in good faith. Peter says that we are to be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. The idea being that the hope will show and invite questions. Then there's the opposition. This also happens to the lives, in the lives of the people that Jesus makes new. The Pharisees ask questions, they draw conclusions, they don't believe him because they don't want to believe him. Excuse me, something's in my eye. Maybe someone could spit in some mud and... Ah, clear that up. That wasn't in the notes. The Pharisees, they ask questions, they draw conclusions, not about the man, but about Jesus. And they say, he's a sinner. I know Jesus is a sinner, so you can't say anything good about him. Now, this is important that we see the enemies of Christ do this. They cannot deny. They cannot deny that the man was healed. They can't challenge the changed life. And, and this should be the way it is with us. If you say, I once was lost and now I'm found, and that's your testimony, the way you live your life will be evident, and the way you live your life will bear out what you say to be true, and people will not be able to argue about that. So what do they do? They bring their gripe to God. Same as the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees say that Jesus can't be from God because he healed on the Sabbath. We've addressed this in earlier sermons. Others say that the miracle is actually evidence of Christ's sinlessness. Now, that's quite a confession, isn't it? People saw the miracle of one man's life, and what do they do? They glorify God. They draw the conclusion that Jesus is more than just a good teacher. Uh, he, he may be actually without sin. This also is the way, of God, the way God has designed the conversion process to be part of evangelism. He changes us, people notice, and then they know that Jesus is who he says he is. The man suffers more persecution. His family, they identify him as their son who was blind, but they definitely distance themselves from him. That's what it means when they say, he's old enough, ask him yourself. They're saying, we refuse to be responsible for his actions or words. Now, I think that would hurt a little bit. As a man born blind, this man would have relied on the care of his parents throughout his life. And now they are denying it, really, because of what he might say about Jesus. 
because they're afraid that if they say something nice about Jesus, they'll be excommunicated, which is what's going to happen to their son. But in the end, after all the questions and the answers and the arguing, the real testimony of this man is boiled down to verse 25. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. This must be your testimony. And this is your strongest defense. You were blind, but now you see. This is both praise and testimony. We sing it in worship to the Lord as confession. I was blind before you opened my eyes, God. And then we preach it to a world as witnesses of Jesus Christ. I was blind, but now I see, and I can show you the light of the world. Many of you have been slow. Many of us have been slow in evangelism because, you know, we're so aware of the things that we don't know. And what if they ask this question and I won't be able to answer it? But this is all you need to know to be his witnesses, that he has touched your life. As believers gathered on a Sunday, we can take this truth to the Lord in worship, which is what we're going to do next. Um, and we, we, we can praise him for the beauty of this truth. But if we stopped there, then we've missed the point. This is personal testimony that is meant to reach the world. Tell people what Christ has done for you, who he has made you, how he has healed you. And, and when you see that mercy has been shown to you in this way, that Christ has made you see, then you'll also be able to see the world in a way better than the disciples saw the world at the beginning of the chapter. The one who has had mercy shown to them sees other people in need of mercy and they see themselves as a conduit of Christ's mercy instead of just seeing the, the hurting and the broken and the troubled as people who are projects um, as, or as even as people who are just theoretical, hypothetical, theological discussions to have. We see people as opportunities for Christ's glory to be shown. So we're sent. If, you've, if you can see, then you're sent. And we're going to pray now, but what I'm going to pray is that God, who, the God who healed you would continue to send you and, and that each one of you would be aware not only of the great healing work that Christ has done in your soul, but also that you would be more and more aware of where you are sent to, to whom you are sent. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the light of the world, and you have made us see. We were darkness, but you have transferred us completely into the kingdom of the Son of your love. And God, I pray for your church. I pray for Calvary Chapel. Uh, I pray that we would, um, we would be able to see um, not just what you have done for us, not only to be able to see uh, the, the, the beauty of your glory and the, and the goodness of the gospel, but that we would be able to see the world around us as you see them. Open our eyes to see things from your word, to see things in your face, to see things in your church, but also to see this world as an opportunity for you to save. You are mighty to save, and today is the day of salvation. Mobilize your church. Send your church. We thank you for your kindness to heal us and your kindness to include us in your Father's business. Bless your church. In Jesus' name, amen.